This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. This week, we're going to cover that roller coaster ride the bond markets have been on once again and what it means for your investments and your mortgage. Joining me to pick that apart is Laith Kalaf, our Head of Investment Analysis. Yeah, hi, Laura. I'm also going to be giving an update on those tricksy US debt ceiling negotiations, uh, as well as explaining why your pension might be about to be used to inject some growth into the UK stock market. And on top of all that, we've also got an update on the energy price cap. We're delving into the mining sector with our fund manager interview this week with E.B. Hambro, manager of the BlackRock World Mining Trust. And we'll have the latest markets news, including NVIDIA posting bumper profits. But first up, let's dive into the bond markets again. So just when we thought that markets had died down and the bond market could go back to being that sleepy place, it's reared its head again. What's happening there? Yeah, so there's been a big sell-off in the UK government bond market in the last week, and that's led to a rise in gilt yields, um, which move in the opposite direction to prices. Uh, The 10-year gilt yield is now yielding above 4% uh, again, Um, and that's really been prompted by that nasty inflation number that we saw last week. CPI came down, but uh, not as much as expected, and also core inflation actually crept up again. So the result of all that is that markets are now actually um, predicting that the the Bank of England is going to have to hike interest rates uh, even more. Uh, Currently, the expectation is that we're going from 4.5% right now uh, to 5.5% by the end of the year, because the Bank of England basically is expected to have to do something to, to tame inflation. So really, in a very short space of time, uh, we've gone from you know a couple of weeks ago talking about perhaps the end of the interest rate hiking cycle um, to to perhaps thinking that it might actually um, have quite quite a distance to go, and that's obviously had implications for the bond markets. Um, and you know the the the, the rise in in gilt yields um, is is now kind of we're now kind of almost where we were, um, you know, during the the kind of gilt market chaos in the in the wake of the the mini budget uh, last year, um, which is kind of becoming one of those historical staging posts. It's kind of like one of the things that you compare things to. How bad were things like, you know, in the wake of, you know, global financial crisis, in the wake of the Brexit vote, and in the wake of the mini budget, how 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 chaotic were markets? But the gilt market is now basically back to that, that kind of level. Um, and we saw a lot of problems, obviously, um, exposed during that time, the, the kind of LDI pension crisis. Um, it looks at the moment. I mean, this this has happened quite quickly. This jump up in yields, but um, I don't think it's quite the same scale or the same same speed that we had on 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 the kind of um, on the back of the mini budget. But obviously, one of the key um, implications, um, particularly for um, people homeowners, is is obviously the implications for the mortgage market, which which are priced off off. Of gilt yields, of interest rates, and and Laura, there's been some, there has been some sort of signs of of turmoil there, haven't there? Yeah, there have, and I think what people might have seen in the past few days is, you know, mortgage rates shoot up, and uh, providers are pulling mortgage products from the market. And while that is true, we're certainly not in the kind of panic situation that we were after that mini budget that you talked about late last year. Um, so what we have seen is is the mortgage market reacting to this movement in um, 
guilt and what we've got is that rates have gone up and some providers generally kind of more specialist smaller providers have pulled products but on a much lesser scale than we saw before so um We've got some data from MoneyFacts, which shows that the number of residential mortgages, so not buy-to-let ones, but ones that um, owner-occupiers would have, the number of them dropped by about 400. But to frame that, there are still 5,000 mortgage products out there. So it's a decent number, but it's not a huge proportion of the overall mortgage market. Um, And the number of mortgage products out there hit less than 4,000 after the mini budget. So we're still a long way from that panic in the market that we saw then. Um, And the same with rates. So the average five-year fix has risen from just under 5% as we were going into May um, to 5.05%. So an increase, but not kind of a leap in figures that maybe some of the headlines might have you believe. Um, And also, if we frame that after that mini budget madness, that the rates at that point hit six and a half percent for the average five-year fix. So we're still a long way from that. But what we are seeing is obviously rates are far higher. This time last year, the average five-year fix was 3.2% around that mark. So much higher mortgage costs than there were a year ago. And we have seen that that uptick. It's a bit of a worrying place, I think, for anyone who's um, moving house or getting on the property ladder or remortgaging at the moment to kind of know what to do because the market is moving so quickly. Um, I think getting yourself a good broker is probably a good first port of call. But let's dive into the wider markets news now. So we've got some great results from tech company NVIDIA. What did they say? Yeah, well, NVIDIA has become the world's first trillion dollar chip company. And that's after uh, uh, posting bumper profits uh, last week. The company has said it's expected its sales to rise to $11 billion in the current quarter. And that was around 50% above analyst expectations. So way above what the market was was thinking it was going to say. The investment bank Morgan Stanley um, actually described that profit upgrade as the largest dollar revenue upside in industry history and that it had no historical precedent, um, just to give you sort of an idea of, yeah, the mismatch between the kind of expectations and and what the company said. Um, So, you know, NVIDIA really came to prominence, I think, in in a market sense during the pandemic because its it's share price soared like a lot of other tech stocks uh, because of, you know, the huge shift in activity online. It was one of the real pandemic winners you know the 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 share price rose from uh 60 60 dollars a share before the pandemic to around 300 dollars a share at the back end of 2021 now 2022 was a very different beast the share price actually more than halved to around 120 dollars um nvidia was basically hit by a bit of a double whammy there was a profit warning warning from the company and also there was you know a sell-off in in the tech sector which was kind of across the board, really, um, but but you know we've seen that kind of shift direction a bit this year. There's a bit more confidence in 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 tech, um, and you know there's, the the Invelia share price has has really been on a charge. It's now over, you know, four hundred bucks. As I say, you know, it's the company is now worth over a, a trillion dollars, and a large reason for it is something we've been talking a fair amount uh, about a fair amount recently, which is. Um, artificial intelligence uh, nvidia makes chips which are integral to creating generative ai systems you know that actually used in the the chat G, gpt chat bot which you know most people would have heard about now it's been asked to 
asked all manner of silly things to see how it responds, but it is potentially a um, you know a, a fairly groundbreaking you know development in in technology. And and then Nvidia's CEO is actually heralding a new computing era. Is is how he describes it, driven by AI, not least because. AI can actually be used to write computer code itself. So that potentially democratizes computer programming. You know, it, it's possible that kind of at one, one point, everyone will be able to, to create computer software simply by giving instructions in English to, to an artificial intelligence. So, you know, I think NVIDIA, existing NVIDIA shareholders will be, of course, extremely happy with what's uh, been going on this year. But you know, the stock is actually trading at around 50 to 60 times next year's earnings. That makes it pretty expensive uh, and also leaves very little margin for, for any errors. And, you know, as we saw last year, um, any errors can be punished quite heavily for stocks that are trading on very high valuations like that. But it's not all plain sailing in the AI world at the moment, is it? There's a bit of a backlash brewing from inside the industry. And someone even claimed last week that AI would mean the end of humanity, which is really lovely and cheery, isn't it? Um, lovely, but- yeah. But, you know, we've all seen Terminator, right? We know how this ends, okay? <laughs> so, uh, you know, well, I, think, I think. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it was okay. I mean, yeah. You know, there's kind of one timeline where you've got kind of deadly robots exterminating humanity. And then there's our timeline, which, you know, we've got people spending their free time using AI to um, generate sort of rap videos by Eminem about cats. So, you know, <laughs> which is the real dystopia here? I don't know. So, <laughs> uh, But yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely a, a concern which seems to be seeping out. And, and as you say, seeping out from within the industry. So, um, you know, an open letter uh, has been has been written and signed by 350 industry experts. Um, it's only 22 words, so I can read it out in its entirety. Um, and it goes as follows. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. So yeah, a pretty um, pretty robust warning there. Yeah, yeah, exhale, exhale very loudly indeed. Um, so you know, and and this isn't coming from people who you might think of as you know luddites or kind of people who are uh, are kind of resisting technology. This is you know we've got signatories from CEOs of you know leading AI companies like OpenAI, who created um, ChatGPT and and Google DeepMind. Also signed by, you know, Jeffrey Hinton and, and Joshua Bengio. They won a Turing Award for their work on neural networks. They're often hailed as the godfathers of, of AI. So this is a really unusual case of, you know, an early stage industry really um, crying out for regulation of itself, which it's, you know, it's the fact that the industry is crying out for it itself sort of sets, you know, alarm bells ringing. So, um, you know, perhaps some more regulation coming for AI. I think, you know, there does seem to be a question to me, is regulation going to be enough for this kind of thing? Because, you know, we've got, for instance, in the financial world, is a very heavily regulated space with lots of experience in dealing with crises. And we've still got things like, you know, um, you know, the LDI crisis, the global financial crisis, London finance and capital. Bad things happen when things fall through the regulatory net, which we have to admit, because we're subject to human human error, occasionally they do. Um, So, you know, if you've got 
you know, potentially, you know, extinction level events happening because of a regulatory failure. That doesn't either seem to be a particularly good place to be. So it's also interesting, you know, it, it, it's, you know, that's, that's obviously fairly apocalyptic, but there are actually some, some people, and there was a, a letter to a couple of months ago, again, signed by industry luminaries, including Elon Musk, actually saying we should actually have a pause on, um, on AI development that, you know, actually we should, before we start developing ever more intelligent, artificial intelligences, we should have a stop and a think about some sort of safety measures that we, we can put in place. Um, and, and that actually seems, um, you know, to be, to, to be actually seems to me to be quite a sensible thing to do. So, you know, of course, kind of AI can, you know, bring lots of benefits. Um, you know, it can, it can potentially transform and improve industries, potentially disrupt industries, but there definitely seems to be some rising pushback against the kind of unfettered progress of, of AI and from within the industry as well. So very much one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a debate that that carries on and more companies jump in on depending on their perspective on it. If you want to hear more in-depth news on certain UK companies, we've started a special bonus episodes of the podcast where the Shares Magazine team do a deep dive on individual businesses. The first one is now live and it looks at the problems that have dogged Vodafone in recent years and looks at the company behind brands like KFC and Pizza Hut and how it's been successful over the past few years. But back to today's podcast, we've covered the US debt ceiling issues a lot on the podcast recently. But Laith, can you just give us an update on what's happening there? Because it's a big looming issue that is actually impacting markets now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So just a quick update, really, because as you say, it's, it's a movable feast. So this is just to recap the regular vote that goes through Congress in the US to extend the limit on, on debt the US government can take on to pay its bills. Currently, that amount is is 31 a trillion dollars. There's lots of sort of political horse trading going on um, to, to to lift that ceiling. Um, so we're expecting a vote in the House of Representatives today. Basically, President Joe Biden and the um, uh, Republican Speaker um, Kevin McCarthy have come to a deal. They're just selling that to uh, members of Congress now. So expecting a House, House of Representatives vote today. We're recording this on Wednesday. By the time uh, some of you are listening to this, you may well know what the result of that vote is. If that vote uh, is then, if that if these measures are then approved uh, in the House of, of Representatives, it then goes on to the Senate for a further vote. And all of that needs to be wrapped up by next Monday, the 5th of June. Uh, that's the current deadline uh, for, the, for the debt ceiling. So we are very much getting to the uh, squeaky bum end of proceedings. Um, but let's, uh, let's put that to one side. Let's just assume that you know Congress is going to sort all that out. We've had some other big news um, here in the UK in the last week, Laura, that uh, affects all of our money, and that was the energy price cap uh, announcement. So hugely important to you know everybody across the country. So what what are our new energy costs going to be? Yeah, so this was the announcement of the Ofgem energy price cap um, and what it will be from the 1st of July. And so the figures show that it, the average energy bill, so for electricity and gas, um, annually will be £2,074. So recently, we haven't really cared about the Ofgem energy price cap because we've been covered by the government's energy price guarantee. There's basically two energy price cap mechanisms just to make everything 
all the more confusing for the end consumer. Um, but we've had the government's energy price guarantee that's capped energy rates. Um, that is becoming less generous uh, from the 1st of July. And so it means the off-gen price cap is back in play. And we once again care about what that figure is. Um, so what it means is that those average energy bills from 1st of July will now be reliant on the off-gen price cap. And they're going to be more than £400 below what we've been paying at the moment. So that is headline news, good for households, lower energy costs. Once you dig into the detail, it's not quite so good because the government was giving us that £400 off our bill this winter. That's now come to an end. The government hasn't announced any plans to do that again this winter or this year. Um, so that £400 there that we're saving a year on our energy costs as a result of falling wholesale energy costs um, is kind of cancelled out by the £400 that the government is no longer giving us off our energy bills. Um, so we're a bit net neutral. Um, we are expecting that at the next price cap update, um, energy prices to drop at slightly more. We're not expecting a dramatic drop back down to pre-pandemic levels anytime soon, but we are hoping that they're kind of headed in the right direction and we're not going to see that soaring jump up to what energy prices were. Um, the slightly disappointing news in the detail also is that standing charges haven't been cut. So while that overall average energy cost um, has reduced, the standing charges, which is the costs um, that are per day and they're just the cost of providing you with that energy, so just being connected up to the grid, those have stayed exactly the same. And so what it means is before you've used a single unit of electricity or gas, you have to pay just under £6 a week just to be connected before you've used anything, so almost £300 a year. Um, that's staying the same as it was before. It's only the unit price of electricity and gas that's dropping. It's quite frustrating for people who are really trying to cut back on their energy usage because that's a charge that you just can't get around. You can't reduce it by using less energy. Um, so I think that's slightly frustrating that the off-gem hasn't reduced that. Um, but generally, you know, energy. we know wholesale energy prices have dropped. That's filtering through. The price cap is updated every three months now. So if those prices do fall, we should see the benefit of that sooner. And then elsewhere, if we look towards other things that affect everyone's money, anyone who has pensions, there's been some proposed changes from the government that would affect how our pension money is invested, but also potentially boost the UK's stock market. What are they, Leith? Yeah, so no, no firm proposals yet, but we've had some uh, a speech from City Minister Andrew Griffith uh, saying that the government is working on streamlining regulations and also encouraging um, a greater culture of risk taking um, amongst pension schemes. And the idea that's sort of co doing the rounds appears to be coming from the think tank Tony Blair Institute, um, and their idea is that. Um, the, the government might fold lots of small final salary schemes into the P pension protection fund, which is currently the the pension lifeboat scheme, which kind of it it assumes the the assets and liabilities of uh, schemes that um, become in, the employers become insolvent. So rather than waiting for that to happen, actually move schemes into that, maybe move Nest into that as well, so that you've got this really big pot of money that is then centrally controlled. And the government then says, well, you need to invest some of this money in high growth UK companies. So the idea is that, you know, lots of pension money, 
built up over the years. Issue over here with kind of encouraging business in the UK. Let's use this money to do that. So, you know, it's you, you can see where it's coming from. Um, there are a number of problems with the plan. Um, the final salary schemes themselves are all closed, or mostly all, all closed, almost all closed, and they're very slowly winding down. So employers still have to pay out the pensions that they promised, but they're not accruing new liabilities. Um, and, you know, they might want to get the, the assets off, you know, the liability off their balance sheet, but actually a lot of schemes have already hedged their risk by investing um, in bonds. So they might not actually be that bothered about, you know, kind of holding onto a pension scheme and just letting it run off. But, you know, even assuming that you can get schemes to hand over their assets and their liabilities to to a super fund, the plan is for, for that super fund to then invest in high growth UK assets. So a lot of a lot of UK smaller companies and startup. Well, okay, but doesn't the scheme still have a fiduciary duty to the members to not take too much risk, which might endanger their pension schemes? Um, you know, if 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 you're you know if you're looking at where to invest, you might invest some in smaller companies, but not you might not choose not to invest a huge amount because of the risk. Um, you also might not just choose UK companies. Why wouldn't you, if you're looking to maximize returns to keep the pensions solvent, why wouldn't you look overseas for good opportunities as well? You know, shouldn't they be allowed to diversify? We're always telling people to diversify their investments. Um, it seems, you know, it's very, very strange for the government to then be saying you need to invest a certain amount in, in these UK fairly risky high growth areas. Um, and of course, people will still need to be paid their pensions. So there's an issue of where the cash is going to come from. So if you're investing in very small, high growth companies, quite a lot of those won't generate any cash for years. You might not even be able to encash them because they not be, might not be quoted on public markets. So what's going to happen to all the, the cash flows? Um, and, and the other thing is, if, you're, if you are buying new, these high growth companies, um, you're also selling your existing assets. And guess what those are? They're UK government bonds in the main. So actually, you're kind of saying to the pension schemes, well, sell off all your UK government bonds. What's that going to do? Well, that's probably going to push up uh, guilt yields and government borrowing costs. So, um, you know, we've already seen the, the problems that that can cause. So potentially an own goal there as well. So it seems that, you know, the government has identified there's lots of money over here in pension schemes. You know, there's a problem over here kind of in kind of encouraging British business. And they're kind of trying to put two and two together. But it sounds like they're almost adding up. Um, to, to to minus five at the moment rather than four. <laughs> so uh, let's 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 leave the world of pensions behind because we're we're heading into the world of commodities. Uh, our fund manager interview this week is with Evie Hambro, uh, co-manager of the BlackRock World Mining Trust, an industry veteran uh, with more than thirty years under his belt. Now he's talking to Danny Houston about the prospects for the mining industry after a very mixed start to twenty twenty three for the sector. Evie, thanks so much for joining us. Um, really appreciate your time. Um, investors are really fascinated by the sector that you work in. Inflation has been great for miners, but I think we all know that the economy is changing. So what risks are you now thinking about, particularly when it comes to inflation, recession, China? Those are the three things that I think are on people's minds. Yeah, I think, um, well, hey, thank you very much for having me on. Um, I, I think in terms of, you know, where we invest and what we do, 
you know, there are things that happen in the short term, and then there are kind of underlying themes that drive the kind of medium to long term. And so when we think about the short term, uh, absolutely, the points that you raise are part of our investment framework. You know, we're always looking to see, you know, what, you know, the, the near term moves are in commodities demand and, uh, and what the kind of economic activity is around the world. Um, but we're dealing with businesses that invest for the long term. Um, these are um, large businesses in general uh, that are allocating capital, uh, making investment decisions to increase supply or build new capacity uh, where assets last for decades. Uh, and so worrying about the next you know, couple of weeks or couple of months um, is really just noise in the overall picture uh, with regards to what the companies are doing. Uh, and we tend to find that by aligning uh, our investment strategy somewhere between uh, the kind of the, beyond the, the short-term horizon and more aligned to that kind of medium long-term horizon allows us to see through some of that volatility and capture a lot of the trends that tend to drive most of the value creation um, that the companies are, see are seeking to deliver uh, for their shareholders. And so when we think about that, the single biggest driver that we see happening in this space over the next you know, 5, 10, and 20 years uh, is related to the energy transition. Uh, which is going to be completely transformative to the global economy. You know, moving away from a fossil fuel-driven um, global economy uh, into one that is going to be uh, carbon, uh, well, significantly less carbon-intensive and hopefully getting to even lower points around that. Uh, re it results in swapping fossil fuels uh, for metals. Um, and we move away from you know, burning you know, carbon-intensive commodities to generate energy into trying to capture and distribute energy mechanically. And that can't be done without the commodities that the businesses that we're exposed to uh, are producing. So we feel that we're able to capture a lot of that growth uh, in, the, in these companies. The second thing is that these businesses are seeking to invest uh, to decarbonize their own operating footprints. And if they can do that, that will obviously help their own investment story because they will be seen through a more attractive ESG lens than the kind of backward-looking one that most people tend to use uh, when looking at businesses in this space, it, to us, it's a, it's completely uh, absurd that you know businesses that are essential for the transition are being marginalised from capital um, because of the kind of backward-looking approach that much of the ESG data tends to focus on. Uh, so when we're looking at this, we tend to kind of look through the windscreen uh, rather than the the rearview mirror. I want to talk more about ESG and I also want to talk more about coal, but you were talking about stripping out the noise. There are some issues which potentially have the capacity to, to make big changes. I'm particularly thinking about geopolitical issues like the tension between the United States and China and also things like Chile making changes with how it works with miners in terms of tax and, and royalty levels. Yeah, I, I think it's it's always important for people to understand that resource assets are not mobile, uh, and therefore you are operating in your host country. Um, and you know the ever-present threat uh, of resource nationalism has been with this space for hundreds of years, uh, and it's not going to go away. You can't just you know move a factory from one country to another because you're stuck with the geological endowment uh, that you're operating within. And therefore, relations with host governments are an essential way of managing risk. Uh, and what we've seen recently in some countries around the world is an increase 
uh, in these risks as we've as countries have sought to uh, change levels of taxation and, and, and so on for resource businesses. What we've also seen most recently, and you referenced Chile, uh, is the initial um, kind of, uh, I guess, statements that were made were very inflammatory. They were set at incredibly high bars with regards to the penalties that companies could have to suffer. What we've seen as a result of engagement between companies, uh, governments, uh, and society is a huge change and many of these demands have been toned down dramatically. Uh, and in actual fact, um, the, the, the terms that were set were so disadvantageous to the country, uh, they stopped inward investment in Chile. Where, we, where the industry has now reached is a much, much fairer balance. In fact, very much in line with what was originally the case. Um, so despite all of the noise at the start that stopped people from investing in the country and created, I guess, yeah, uh, nervousness and, and, and a lot of investors sold, the opportunity was exactly to do the opposite um, because the bar had been set you know, unrealistically high uh, and then as a result of negotiation was brought down to a level that works for, uh, for, the, for the benefit of all stakeholders uh, in that region. And that has tended to be the pattern uh, in most countries around the world. Now, clearly there are examples of outright nationalization uh, that we've seen in, in some countries um, but and those countries are still, you know, off the map with regards to investment for groups like ourselves. But I would say, in most cases throughout my career, you know, common sense has tended to prevail. You said that you look through the windscreen when it comes to ESG. I mean, mine is still trading below historic averages, and a lot of that clearly is down to concerns about ESG. How far has the sector come? And when do you think perception will start to change or has it already? So just to be clear, um, uh, when, I, when I made that comment, you know, we look through the, uh, the windscreen, but we also look at the historic data. You have to look at both. And I think that far too many people only look at the historic data. They don't look to see what companies are doing to change. Uh, and that's really important. You know, if the historic data is bad, you need to understand why it was bad. You need to understand what happened. Um, but you also need to understand what a company is doing about it and how they're going to get better. You know, if a company is trading at a massive discount because of something that has ha happened in the past, you know, if that company is improving, um, if the business is, is understands that, that the, the things that have happened, is putting in place uh, processes to control risks to prevent those things from happening um, again, but also seeking to do even more than that and to get better and better moving to a, a net zero uh, framework. Um, there are loads of positive steps happening in that regard. Uh, and if you're only looking at the backward data or the historic stuff and not looking to see what positive changes might or might not be happening, it won't give you the full picture. So, you know, with regards to the way we do our framework, we try and do both of those. Uh, and we're trying to make sure that we're not beholden to third-party data providers that are only telling us about the past. Clearly, climate change uh, and the path to net zero has both good and bad impact on the mining sector. I mean, you were saying earlier that there are huge opportunities in, in the shift to net zero. Where do you stand when it comes to coal? Uh, well, obviously, the, all commodities are going to have a role as a result of the transition. You know, if you were to turn off coal production for the world today, there would be millions of people around the world who would have no power. Uh, and that clearly is what nobody wants that. Uh, what we need to do is we need to work through this incredibly complex change to the global economy. 
You know, you can't sim simply flick a switch and make everybody have renewable power overnight. Uh, we need to go through a transition, which is complex. It's enormous in terms of scale. We've never seen the likes of money that need to be invested um, happen before that we're facing with regards to this transition. New technologies need to be invented to be able to help solve some of these problems. You know, we don't have as a world today, the perfect battery chemistry. Um, you know, that is going to be something that changes through time. Um, and you know, there's a huge amounts of money going to be invested in research and development to try and unblock those opportunities, um, that the world needs to find solutions for, uh, to be able to do this transition. So we're really excited about the transition. We see opportunities for different commodities to play different roles uh, as part of this transition. We also see a lot of challenges attached to the transition, trying to find the amount of commodities that are needed to be able to deliver the transition is one of the biggest ones. Um, and starving companies of capital um, so that they can't invest for the future um, is you know, completely strange decision. We need to see these companies be able to grow production to help to be able to meet the needs of demand from uh, the investments that are going to take place. But they also need to do that in a way that meets all of the criteria that, that is applied to them around things like ESG, but also returns. If these businesses are not generating returns, there are no taxes to pay uh, to governments. There are no wages uh, to pay to the employees. Uh, and there are no returns to, uh, to, to banks to be able to pay for the debt or to shareholders who provided the risk capital. So we need to work in a framework that allows a balanced approach to returns to be able to meet the needs of the transition. And I'm really excited about it because the opportunities that we see ahead of us are, are just you know, incredible. Yeah, and we've got demand for metals like copper just set to absolutely go through the roof. There's been a whole load of M&A activity going on. But as you say, there still needs to be more investment. What are your team looking at when it comes to where you make your investments? Yeah, well, we, we look for loads of things. I mean, clearly the most important thing is that our clients give us capital to try and get a return for them. Uh, and that's why they, they allocate the money to us in the first place. So we have to fulfill our fiduciary responsibility uh, in meeting that goal. We have to also do it responsibly. Uh, and so as a result of engagement with companies, we need to understand how they're operating, why they're operating, what they're doing about their own responsibilities to the communities and governments and employees that they have. So we build all of that into our investment framework when thinking about making investment decisions. And you know, fortunately, we've done this for many decades now. Um, a little, I'm a little bit old in the tooth, uh, having done this for nearly 30 years. Um, but you know, we've got a lot of experience on the team that allows us, hopefully, through time, to identify the winners uh, and not to and not have too many losers in the portfolio, so that we can deliver our goals for our clients uh, and the reasons why they've given us capital in the first place. Now we are a bit short on time, so I just want to ask you a parting question which is what are you most excited about when it comes to this sector what do you think is going to be the most important development going forward oh i mean that's a question that deserves far more time than you've probably given me um because there are so many exciting developments that we see i, I think you, it, it's it's you can probably break it down into a couple of factors i think the, the first one is that the resources sector has never been better positioned than i than the way I see it today. I've never seen a more robust demand outlook. I've never seen a supply side that is as constrained as the one is today. And I've never seen resource companies with as strong a balance sheets uh, as they have right now. 
And when you think about the past, the volatility in returns has been has been in part driven by excessive levels of, of, of debt combined with overspending or poorly allocated capital. Those two risk factors are just not relevant today in the resources space because the debt has been paid off and the capital allocation frameworks are more disciplined now than I've seen in my entire career. So for me, you know, this is one of my, my personally, my biggest areas of investment for me, my wife, and for my kids um, because of the opportunities that we see, well, I see on their behalf uh, with regards to, to what's going to happen over the next few years. So I'm deeply excited about the kind of the energy transition tide coming in uh, and lifting uh, the valuations of, uh, of companies exposed to it. That's the first thing. The second thing is I'm really excited about the new technologies that are going to come through to help unblock some of these challenges. You know, whether it's the battery chemistry changes that we mentioned earlier on and, and how that applies to different commodities, whether it's the technology solutions to do with storage and energy transition, efficiency gains that we're seeing across the uh, broader book of, uh, of portfolios that we look uh, after at BlackRock. You know, all of these are going to be uh, very, very value creative uh, for our clients through time. So again, I'm very excited about that other side of the equation. So not just the resources side, but also some of the solutions that are going to be put in place to help make this a world that's going to be good for my kids and, and grandkids and, and things into the future. Evie, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Now, we know that big tax changes were brought in with the start of the new tax year when it comes to dividends and capital and gains. But Laura, you've got some figures on just how popular that has actually made ISAs, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. So we looked at the number of bed and ISA transactions that were carried out, which is a lovely jargon. But essentially what that means is locking in gains that you've got in your investments that sit outside an ISA and a pension and moving them into an ISA. Um, so it's a service that your platform can carry out for you um, and they kind of carry it out in one transaction, selling it from one account and buying back in another account. Um, and people do that to... Uh, use up tax allowances or to move money into their ISA to protect it from tax in future years. Um, and what we saw is that the these bed and ISA transactions increased by 3.5 times um, in March and April this year when compared to the previous year. And so that shows the level of activity basically of investors moving their money into a tax efficient wrapper that is the ISA because of this big crackdown on wealth taxes. So we know that the tax-free limit for capital gains tax and for dividend tax has been cut in half um, this year and then is being cut again from next April. So we're seeing people really rush to use those ISAs. And we know actually, based on a previous um, FOI request that AJ Bell did, actually I think, Laith, you did this. Um, we know that yeah. around 1.8 million more people are going to be caught paying dividend tax in the next two years as a result of this cutting of the tax-free allowance. So that shows the real scale of the issue and the fact that more people are moving into their ISA. Now, typically, um, we see a lot of activity for this towards tax year end. So people realize that um, the clock is ticking on using their ISA allowance um, and they rush to move money into it in March and April. But actually, I think what we're anticipating this year is that people will keep up that momentum and will have used the start of the new tax year, which we've had over the past um, couple of months, to use up those ISA allowances sooner to protect more of that money from tax. So if you think about someone who's got 
investments sitting outside an ISA that are paying dividends at the moment. The sooner they move them into their ISA in this tax year, the less tax they're going to pay on it if they're above that tax-free threshold. The same for capital gains tax. People might want to lock in that annual allowance already on their tax-free capital gains tax limit um, and get it into an ISA to just reduce their tax bill this year. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Laura. That's everything for this week. Next week, Danny and Dan will be back with all the latest market and personal finance news. If you want to get in touch, then please email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk with any suggestions, ideas for guests or questions that you have. We'll see you next time. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.